This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Zeiss Sports Optics and their Spring Fever promotion. Get instant rebates on model year Zeiss binoculars, including the excellent Victory SF and the Conquest HD at all authorized Zeiss dealers. It's going on now through April 10th, 2017. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I just want to start out this episode with an acknowledgement of the loss of Chandler Robbins a couple weeks ago. We were finishing up production of the last podcast when the news came out, so we, we didn't mention it then, but I wanted to mention it now, as there are few, if any, individuals in the birding community who had such a sustained influence on nearly every aspect of birding as a hobby and as a science, and the sort of rich intersection between the two where most of us live, as Chandler Robbins did. There have been an outpouring of memories in the wake of his passing, nearly all of them focusing on Chan's legendary humility and kindness, his extraordinary dedication to good science, much of it in the service of bird conservation. His work with DDT influenced none other than Rachel Carson, whose book Silent Spring arguably set in motion the entire conservation movement in the United States. He was among the first to start talking about forest fragmentation and its effect on birds, which are concepts that are sort of baked into the minds of birders anymore. It is impossible to underplay his influence in a lot of what we do. He was also in an an important figure in ABA history. I, I don't know if a lot of people know that. He served as the first chair of the ABA Checklist Committee, and the ABA awards the Chandler Robbins Award for Birder Education and Conservation to those birders who go above and beyond in those fields, as Chan undoubtedly did. He also received the ABA's Roger Tory Peterson Award for promoting the cause of birding in 2015. There are a lot of birders with Chan stories. I am from a younger generation, and I, I never actually met Robbins, but his influence on certainly weighs greatly on my own birding career. The Golden Guide, the collaboration led chiefly by Robbins, along with Bertle Brune and Arthur Singer, was my first field guide. My dad had a dog-eared copy of the guide with the three buntings on the cover. Uh, the pages were falling out of it. I distinctly recall paging through it over and over again as my interest in birds evolved. I also remember using those sonograms, a real Chan Robbins innovation, in my first real non-feeder bird identification, which was a uh, white-eyed vireo, uh, which lived down by the river where, where we lived. Um, I had heard it calling constantly for weeks before I finally figured out what it was. I loved that format, which was a creation of Brune, mostly, which put all the sort of relevant information right in front of you. I did, and I still do, prefer the guide to the Peterson guide. Uh, if Roger Tory Peterson is justifiably the father of the field guide, then it was Robbins and his colleagues that certainly perfected it. I don't think that it is, that it is overstating things to say that, that Robbins' work made me a birder, and I am absolutely certain that I am not alone there. Robin's other great innovation, the Breeding Bird Survey, came into my life later. I, I run two BBS routes in the Piedmont of North Carolina. I feel like they help me better understand this place where I live, and I love how you can look back on the data for these routes for years, really, and, and actively see how things are changing. And I admit the competitive side of me goes out every year, hoping to beat my species count from the year before. We cannot deny that aspect of birding, of course, and it is a testament to Chan's foresight that he marries the, the lister and the scientists and the conservation in such an effective way. So that's sort of my story. I'll share some more Chan stories that, that we've seen in our various social media accounts in the third part of the episode. 
But first, my guest is an individual that very much brings to mind the spirit of Chandler Robbins and her work, so much so that she was even the recipient of the ABA's Robbins Award in 2015. She is Kim Kaufman. She is the executive director of the Black Swamp Bird Observatory in Northwest Ohio and the big wheel behind the biggest week in American birding, which will be held next month. And she'll be with me right after these rare birds. This is your rare bird focus for the last of March, first little bit of April 2017. The most exciting bird of the period was certainly a white wagtail discovered this past week in Pima County, Arizona. This is potentially a second record for that state and one of only a few records of white wagtail in the interior of the continent. Uh, the bird looks likely to be of the white-backed Ocularis subspecies. This is the most widespread subspecies in East Asia and the population that even breeds as far east as northwestern Alaska. The vast majority of white wagtail records in the west of North America are represented by this subspecies. We also have two first records to report. A first for Utah is a black-throated green warbler videoed in Logan. Interestingly, Utah was the last state in the lower 48 to record this species, which has now been seen in 49 out of 50 U.S. states. The last remaining state without black-throated green warbler is Hawaii, so that might take a little while. Although a common yellowthroat was seen in Japan this past week, so maybe it's not so far off. As for Canada, Yukon is the only province territory with, uh, without black-throated green, uh, so get on that, Yukon birders. In Virginia, a prairie falcon on the Potomac River furnishes a first record for that state. The bird has also helpfully crossed the river into the District of Columbia, where it represents a first for D.C. as well. Always nice to get a twofer. That is a small sampling of the rare bird landscape for the period. For all of the noteworthy vagrants, please check out the ABA blog on Friday mornings for the rare bird alert. Also, get hour-to-hour updates on all these birds at the ABA rare bird alert Facebook group. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare. If it feels like Northern Ohio is the center of the birding universe in early May, that's largely due to the work of my guest. Kimberly Kaufman is the executive director of the Black Swamp Bird Observatory and the driving force behind The Biggest Week in American Birding, a birding festival on the shores of Lake Erie that celebrates migratory birds, bird conservation, and the birding community every year. It's in its eighth year in 2017, and it looks to be bigger and better than ever. Kim, thanks so much for making some time to talk to me. Thank you, Nate. I'm honored and I'm really excited to talk about our festival. Uh, I think that most birders in the ABA community and sort of the the larger birding community are are certainly aware of the biggest week. A lot of people aspire to attend. Uh, A lot of that is because you guys have been so great about uh, social media coverage. Uh, It seems like everyone is there uh, every May. (laughs) Uh, But just for a little background, why is Northern Ohio, this, this spot on the southern shore of Lake Erie, such a spectacular place for migratory birds? Well, it's, um, I was going to say arguably, but I don't think there's any argument about this anymore that the stopover habitat um, in Northwest Ohio, in the Lake Erie marshes, in the western basin of Lake Erie, is, is some of the most important stopover habitat on the entire continent for migratory birds. And we focus a lot of our efforts on um, restoring habitat and conserving habitat on the wintering grounds and on the breeding grounds. But we've got to pay attention to stopover habitat because this is the funneling point where all the birds are coming together. And that happens here in the most spectacular fashion. And it comes together with public areas, wildlife areas, state and federal agencies manage these areas so they're accessible to the public. 
So it allows us to bring birds and birders together in a really sensational way. Hmm. In addition to the uh, the really great birding, the Biggest Week you know promotes a ton of conservation initiatives. Your organization, Black Swamp Bird Observatory, has has always had such a, a real strong grounding in conservation work. When you were coming up with the idea for the Biggest Week, was promoting the exceptional birding your your main agenda, or did you want these opportunities for conservation to be the focus? I, I realize that's sort of like a chicken and egg question. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, um, when we moved into our location, right at the entrance to McGee Marsh Wildlife Area, that's become this iconic spring birding destination, we recognized that this was at the dawn of social media. And places where the birding is so spectacular, as it is at McGee Marsh, were not going to remain a secret any longer. We really wanted to get out ahead of that. We wanted to, um, as my husband Ken said, um, if you want to be a leader, find a parade and get in front of it. (laughs) And we saw this grand parade coming our way and we thought, you know, if we can get out in front of this and market it in a really meaningful way, conservation is really the key, but we needed to leverage the spectacular birding in order to promote conservation. Do you see um, these sort of festivals leading to these really productive conservation outcomes for the stopover habitat in Ohio? For the local area in Northwest Ohio, community leaders, elected officials, um, we have leveraged the excitement of 90,000 birders coming to Northwest Ohio and the economic impact to pique the attention of people that we would have never reached before. So we really weave it all together. So our festival, it, it educates birders and keeps even the conservation issues that people are aware of. It just keeps reinforcing how important these things are. And then it also teaches an entirely new audience about how important it is to protect habitat and conserve habitat as a birder, you know, sometimes it can feel very overwhelming when you look at the whole scope of, of issues that, that birds are having to deal with on a conservation perspective. And um, I think it's really great to be able to say, you know, yes, there are these these big issues like climate change, like uh, land use and management for migratory birds and all sorts of bird species. Uh, but there are all sorts of these little individual things that people can do, like bird-friendly coffee, like uh, like keeping their cats indoors, like picking up uh, monofilament fishing line when you see it, uh, that you really emphasize as well. Uh, do you see people feel as though they can make a difference doing those small things when sort of the larger issues that birds are dealing with can feel overwhelming? Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And I, I we try very hard to tackle the big topics, cats indoors, for an example, one of the most emotionally charged and polarizing yeah, issues. If you've ever worked on it, um, yeah. you will know why I say that conservation work is not for pansies. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you got to be pretty tough. Yeah. But we we also, um, the, the biggest week is actually the final piece in a, a conservation business plan that we've built over a series of about four or five years. And in the beginning, I'll be honest, Nate, we were, I was just absolutely determined to make this the conservation festival and all the talks would be about bird conservation. And, you know, I lost sight of the fact that people that are coming to this event, um, these are people that are coming from all over the globe and a person that has invested the amount of time and money that it takes to travel from Australia to come to Northwest Ohio to go birding. This is their time to step away from all of those issues, all the negative things that they deal with in life, and just have a super fun, happy time birding. 
So I realized very quickly that we can't clobber people with these <laughs> messages or they just tune us out. So we've uh, over the course of the last seven years, this will be our eighth year, we've found a way to just kind of gently infuse the festival with these messages um, and not just to tackle the big issues, but to give people little things. You know, you don't have to go lobby Congress to impact bird conservation just by a duck stamp Yeah. or yeah. switch the kind of coffee that you're drinking. Or if you're out for a walk on the beach and you see some discarded fishing lines, pick it up and throw away. Or if, if friends are releasing balloons at a birthday party, try to help educate them about the impact that can have on birds and marine life too. So top to bottom, we try to cover the big issues, but we also try to make it really simple for people to affect conservation. Yeah. Uh, one of the more interesting things about The Biggest Week that I, I think is the way that the general community really rallies around this festival. Uh, what have you and your, your festival colleagues done to, to get the people there to really roll out the red carpet for birders? Um, we have talked and talked and talked to everybody. And I, I've jokingly said that I spent more, so much time outside my comfort zone that I can't even see it anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we're, I started out as a field researcher banding birds in the marsh. Um, and now I'm, I'm talking to rotary clubs. We are members, the bird observatory. Um, I had us join every chamber of commerce along the, the Northwest Ohio Lakeshore. And I just made, started making cold calls to the chambers of commerce to say, hey, I'd love to come in and talk to you guys about birds. <laughs> um, the same thing with our visitors bureaus. Um, I started knocking on their door and saying, hey, you know, we really need to talk about how we are providing services for birders because they, they want a different suite of services than, say, hunters and anglers do. And just going out there and just literally beating the pavement and talking to people who I'd never talked to before. And it, it's really, um, it's been so affirming, Nate, to see all of Northwest Ohio, our, our Congresswoman and her regular talk about all the great assets of Northwest Ohio birding is now a regular point that she makes. And we, we just see this, it continues to grow, and we've tried really hard um, as part of that conservation business plan, engaging the birding community was a big element of it, because you and I both know that birders can come and see, just have mind-blowing experiences birding, but if they don't get treated well in the hotels, if the bathrooms aren't great, um, that, that whole experience top to bottom really matters. So we wanted our businesses to be prepared for what birders will want and and have done a lot to try and educate them about about the services that they need and even down to um, contacting city councils and saying hey if you guys decide to put out some marquees or some some banners on your your light post through town here are here's a whole folder of warbler photos that are appropriate to the region and we see them using, and they're glorious photos, um, you know, just to make sure that it's appropriate and just covering, we just sweat all those details and it's really, really paid off. Yeah, it really seems like it. Um, so what can birders, uh, people who are attending the festival this year, what can they expect? Is there anything new going on this year at the festival? So we have some really, um, some really interesting things happening. Our birder prom, for example, and this is this is an um, an element of the biggest week that I'm really proud of. The conservation issues are the number one thing for me, um, but we really really want to make this festival all inclusive. 
we want every person who's ever even thought about, maybe I'll go out and try this birding thing. I want this festival to be accessible to them too. So several years ago, we just had this crazy idea to do a bird tattoo contest. And it has taken on a life of its own. Um, It has brought people to us into birding that we would have never been able to reach before. Um, And last year we had this birder prom. (laughs) Um, And the year before, we had two friends who are lesbians that got married during the biggest week. And at their reception, it it was at the same venue where we had court of the festival. Um, the, the people who were on the floor dancing like maniacs, um, like they've never danced before, <laughs> were all the birders. So we were like, this is so fun. We should do something with this. And, and we settled on our birder prom. And about 150 people came and danced like crazy all night. It was so much fun. So we're going to make it an annual thing. Um, so our bird tattoo contest is back, the birder prom. Um, we have diversity walks that we're partnering with um, a Latino community center, center called Adelante in Toledo, um, and we'll take their families out birding, and we try to keep the cost of the festival just as reasonable as we possibly can so that all the people in Northwest Ohio who are getting super excited about all the coverage that we get, um, we don't want it to be cost prohibitive. You know, we don't want that to be a barrier, so trying to make it affordable. So um, all those same things are back um, all the talks and walks are just superb and anyone that wants to come, I'll I'll tell you this, we wish you would register because that gives us the ability to um, get your information, give you a t-shirt and a a tote bag and all those fun things. Um, But if you don't want to register, you should still come here and go birding with us. And we would love that. It's, it's a, the people that are here are wonderful, but the birding Nate is just so amazing. The boardwalk at McGee Marsh, it's it's just it's a it's an absolutely life altering experience. Yeah. I, I'm actually going to be there for the first time this year, this coming May. So I am I'm really what? looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so I'm so happy that I'm I'm really excited that you're going to be here. There are a couple of more a couple of other friends of ours who um, have worked so hard in the birding community like you do, and we've never had the chance to share this with them. And I'm super excited yeah, that I'm, you're going to come. I'm really looking time. forward to it. Uh, everything, you know, I, I've, I, you know, you see it on, you see it on Facebook and Twitter and it, everywhere it's, it saturates <laughs> everywhere in the first week of May. So, um, <laughs> yeah, for finally, I'm going to, I'm I'm not going to miss out this time. So. Yeah. Looking and I have to, to say it. that it's not, it, it is not, there's no hyperbole about the birding here. Um, I've I've never, I've, you know, Ken and I have traveled a lot around the world and the accessibility of the birds um, and the birds are just so confiding. They're so intent on resting and refueling before they cross Lake Erie. The the peak of migration comes through here before we have the full leaf out. So you can see the birds. Yeah, that's a problem down down here in the Southeast. (laughs) We're all leafed out already. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the timing of the aquatic insects and and the way that they um, are dispersed among the vegetation, it has these birds, especially warblers, down at eye level. And by the time the birds get to our latitude, the males are singing. So you have that added joyfulness, too. So it's just really... Um, it's that special <laughs> and it's, it's worthy of every, every birder who can should come here at least once and experience it and just see what it's all about. 
Kim, thanks so much for talking to me. I know this is a super busy time of year for you, and I really appreciate it. Uh, listeners can find more information about Biggest Week at biggestweekinamericanbirding.com. And you can also get information on what Black Swamp Bird Observatory is up to at bsbo.org. Thanks again, Kim. Thank you so much, Nate. I'm so excited to talk to you, and I'm super excited that you're coming to the festival yeah, this year. Yeah, can't wait. I'll see you then. All right, thank you. All right, thanks. In the third segment of the show, one last opportunity for some words about Chandler Robbins. Birding editor Ted Floyd posted his own remembrance of Chan on the ABA blog a couple weeks ago. It focused on a handful of experiences over Ted's life where Chan played a pivotal role in his growth as a birder. I encourage you to read it. I will put a link to that in the show notes. Ted invited readers to share their own Chan stories in the comments, and I'll read a few of those. Kathy Carroll writes, I lived in Maryland for seven years, and Chan's name was frequently and fondly evoked many times. He did attend one of the Maryland Ornithological Society conferences that I also attended, and everyone was so happy to see him. I never officially met him, but I knew he was a towering figure in the birding world, and, if I think of it, he did influence my love of birding in a big way. The Golden Guide was my first bird book, and I drew the Cardinal, Robin, and Chickadee over and over. Thanks, Kathy. Alvaro Jaramillo stops by to say, I can't believe you did not mention his binoculars. They were awesome and horrible at the same time. How do we petition that these go to the Smithsonian? Thanks, Al. Uh, and if you have not seen a photo of Chan's binoculars, you absolutely need to check them out. They're, they are an old pair of Poro Prism Bushnells. The metal is all pockmarked and dented. The rubber armor has long since fallen away and was replaced by this homemade leather casing. They look like the binoculars you would have with you in the zombie apocalypse. They were so uniquely Chandler Robbins and a huge part of his identity. Manuel Lerdow comments, I'm his bird banding grandson, having been trained by Margaret and Don Donald, who worked with him on Operation Recovery. I also had the privilege of working with him 35 years ago on his forest fragmentation project. Chan was a good boss, though not an easy one. He expected a 12 to 14 hour workday, seven days a week during the field season, and told me in all seriousness that I could rest in late July. I still vividly remember his teaching me to catch Chuckwill's widows with my bare hands. He expected complete commitment from himself and inspired it in us. Thanks, Manuel. Laura Erickson, whom you might know from her own podcast slash radio program, wrote in response to an older post in the ABA blog regarding Robbins. The AOU met in Madison, Wisconsin when I was a teacher there in the late 70s. I helped set up museum exhibits for a couple of workshops and led a few field trips to my favorite birding spot. It was late July, so not many birds were still singing, and I was a rather nervous and easily intimidated 20-something. A sweet, rather courtly gentleman came along my, on my field trip, plying me with questions about the differences between my outhouse red start and main path red start. I could pick out differences in their songs that made it easy to tell which was which. And he kept going on and on about how cool it was that I knew exactly where a Virginia Rail would be with her chicks. She goes on, of all the people along, he was by far the most attentive and fun. At the end, he told me that his brother had told him if I was leading a trip, he should go along, and he was sure happy he did. I asked who his brother was, and he said Sam Robbins, and suddenly it hit me. He was Chandler Robbins. My jaw must have dropped. It was so I was so thrilled. I loved everything about his golden guide, knew about his breeding bird survey, and was thrilled to meet him in person. Thank you, Laura. And if you'd like to read more Chan stories, you can find them on Ted's post. Way back in 2012, when Chan was a relatively sprightly 94 years old, the ABA published an interview with him in Birding Magazine. That is online. I will include a link to that as well. 
One of the extra features of that interview was a series of tributes by a number of conservationists and educators who had been influenced by Robbins, and there are a lot of them. Anyone whose career has spanned the time that Chance has is obviously going to have an outsized influence, but reading those tributes, I was struck by how fortunate we all in the birding community were that it was Robbins, with his passion and his creativity and his humanity, that spanned this time for us. He truly put ornithology on the map in a way that perhaps no one else could have. We are still a group of eccentrics, as we were in Chan's time, to a great extent, but I don't think that it's too much to say that we are a better group in a million different ways because of him. Thanks, Chan. You will be missed. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. The ABA is a membership organization for birders in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. Your membership helps to support this podcast and other free resources we provide for birders. Get more information at aba.org join. We would love to have you as a member. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. John's band, The Hangabouts, does the music. You can find us online at aba.org. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders and on Twitter at ABA. Not to be confused with Abe Aerotransport, a bygone Swedish airline. Om du tyckte att det här podcast för att du vill nedlagda svenska flygbolag nyheter har du kommit till fel stalle. Questions, comments, you can reach me at podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.